If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, 1 John, that is, chapter 1, the epistle written by the beloved apostle of our Lord, the one who leaned in on the breast of Jesus, who wrote the gospel, as well as the three epistles in the book of Revelation. I've never preached this sermon on a Christmas morning, but it is apropos, as you will soon find out as we read the text. What's interesting about the introduction here in 1 John is that John does not give a greeting, but he's right out of the gate giving the affirmation of the truth concerning the incarnation of the very person of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, truth that he has empirically witnessed to. He's seen it, he's heard it, he's, he's touched it, he's engaged it, he's had interface with it. He's had communion with the living God in Jesus Christ, and he wants to affirm that truth. So let's listen to God's holy word as I will read 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4, 1 through 4. This is the word of the living God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our, or your joy, may be complete. Thus the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to it. Now let us seek the one who breathed it out through the apostle to come and bless it, bless our ears to hear what the living God says. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, the one who is drawn near in Emmanuel, God with us, there is none like you. We would pray now as we humble our hearts beneath the word of God that this word would come and search us and try us and see if there be any wicked way in us and correct us, rebuke us, and train us for all righteousness that we might be led in the path of righteousness all for the glory of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, take my weak efforts, break them, and feed the multitude before us that you might receive all the glory and all the honor that everyone here would know you, Lord Jesus Christ, eternal life made manifest for sinners. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Christmas is about the incarnation. We sing about the incarnation every year through our carols. We sang this morning that wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Wesley writes, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate 
deity. Beloved, if you understand the word incarnation, you will understand what Christmas is about. We need to look no further than the text before us this morning if we want to understand Christmas and the incarnation of the Son of God. I have three simple points this morning, the history of the incarnation, the content of the incarnation, and the purpose of the incarnation. So the history, the content, and the purpose. So let's look first at the history of the incarnation in verse 1. John begins, out of the gate, again, without the greeting, right? Without all the pleasantries. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now we know from 1 John chapter 2, 19, by way of context and setting the truth before us, that some had departed the fellowship of the church there in Ephesus, in Asia Minor. And those who had left were denying the enfleshment, God taking flesh, assuming our flesh, our humanity, to himself. And John writes to remind those who remain to continue with the proclamation that they first received from John and the other apostles. That proclamation that they had been proclaiming from the beginning, that the word of life, God himself had appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not a ghost. There was an early form, some believe, of that heresy called Gnosticism, which manifested itself in another heresy called Docetism, where it seemed that Jesus had true humanity. It seemed that he had a, a reasonable soul and, and a body like ours, but it wasn't really true. It only seemed to be true. But John calls Jesus Christ the word of life who appeared. He who was from the beginning. You see, John is trying to pick up the echoes there of Genesis 1 and John's gospel in chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, God appeared in the flesh, proclaiming Himself as God and being witnessed to by the apostles, right? That's why we see the first person plural, we, right? It's not the plural of majesty, that's the plural of apostolic witness. We've seen Him, we've touched Him, we've heard Him, we've dwelt with Him, We've been with Him. We know Him to be the Son of God. You see, John, unlike the deniers, said that they had seen, heard, and touched Him. We were eyewitnesses. Three times, he says, we saw Him. We heard Him. We touched Him. This word touched is the same word in Luke 24. Right after the resurrection, you might remember, when many were doubting, right? The two on the road to Emmaus who were discouraged, they had great hopes and aspirations about all that Jesus of Nazareth was, would do. But now he had been crucified and all those hopes had been dashed on the rocky shoals of reality of a Roman cross. But Jesus comes to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands? See my feet? That is, I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. As you see that I have, he was 
raised with the same body that went into the ground, came out of the ground on the third day. He was witnessed to by the apostles, the twelve. And then we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that more than 500 witnesses saw him and communed with him. You see, beloved, what John is insisting on here is that the faith that he and the apostles have proclaimed is founded on historical objective realities. Historical objective realities, much like Peter in 2 Peter 1, 16-19. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Right? It's not just this sentimental thing we do on Christmas. Well, we all get very romantic and misty-eyed. No, that's not the case. We were eyewitnesses of His glory. We heard the voice from heaven at the Mount of Transfiguration. And beloved, we have a more sure word even now in the canon of Scripture in the 27 New Testament books. John is saying, we're not making this up. It's history. It's it happened. We saw it. We testify to it. B.B. Warfield, that great theologian of the 19th century, 20th century, says Christianity is unique among the world's religions because its major doctrines, i.e. the incarnation here before us, are historical facts. They're historical facts. As Machen would pick this truth up following in the footsteps of Warfield. It's the events that save us. It's not a mystical experience. It's not a sentimental expression. It's not a hallmark moment. No, God entered into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. He drew near. He assumed our humanity. Right? That great text in Philippians. Right? He didn't empty himself of anything. He cloaked his glory in our humanity. Fully God and Fully man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Two natures in one person forever joined, without confusion, without mixture, without creating a third substance of some sort. You see, beloved, a Jesus that only appeared to be man cannot shed blood and offer himself as a payment for your sins. The payment for your sins requires human blood, hemoglobin. Now you wonder, is it, was it type A? Was it O? Was it B? I don't know. What's the one that's acceptable to all? Maybe that one. I don't know. We don't know. But he had real blood. He had the blood of Mary. Right, the DNA of Mary, he assumed. Right, the, the usios, the very nature of Mary, the very nature of God, joining together two, two natures in one person. You see, our salvation requires nothing less than God coming in our flesh. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Beloved, it's this history. It's Christ's history in the world, in the world made through him, in the world that he came to dwell in that saves us. In Christ, the God-man, God was reconciling the world to himself. Well, that's the, the history of the incarnation. Let's look secondly at the content of the incarnation in verse 2. Notice what it says there in verse 2 of 1 John chapter 1. 
the life was made manifest, meaning it was displayed, it was empirically verifiable, it was objective. And we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. You see, these deniers, their message was not that Christ and Him crucified and was raised, it was in history. Rather, they were proclaiming salvation through mystical experience, through, through knowledge, uh, esoteric, Gnostic knowledge, <laughs> just like we would find today in the marketplace of ideas in our world, a spiritual Christ, not a historical Christ. No one fears a, a spiritual Christ, right? Well, that's good, great for you, glad it works for you. You see, they were not advocating dogma, but experience, not doctrine, but mysticism. Not the Christ of history, but the Jesus of your own personal experience. You see, saints, they separated the person of Christ from his work. And John would have nothing to do with that. That's not biblical Christianity. You see, the content of the apostolic message was Christ. We proclaim, we testify, we preach to you eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest among us. We saw him who is the word of life. You see, John calls him the word of life. Isn't that interesting? He begins with that relative pronoun, that or which, that first word in chapter 1, verse 1. It's in the neuter. The message became incarnate. The message we preach is Jesus Christ. He's the gospel. The totality of the gospel is found in Jesus of Nazareth, God with us. You see, John wants us to see that the message of Christ and the person of Christ are one. Christ embodies the very message that the apostles proclaimed. Jesus is the word of life, the eternal life which was with the Father. He is the revelation of God. John 14, 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You wonder what God's like? You hear people speculate about that all the time. I wonder what He's like. Look into the face of Jesus Christ as He's revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is God. The face of God in Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus Christ, the Father has disclosed Himself savingly. Hebrews 1.1, He is the exact imprint of His nature. Like having a, a piece of soft wax. Taking a ring and pressing in on that ring and getting the exact replica, the, the exact representation of God Himself is found in Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, this is the heart of of the gospel. The message of Christmas is that the invisible God became visible in Christ. That baby lying in the manger is very God, a very God begotten, not made. Let me be clear today, right? Some of us here this morning, I don't know who you are. I know you're visiting and we welcome you and I'm so happy and thankful that you're here with us. And maybe some of you are members and you've been here 40 plus years. But I want you to know this. 
that if you're going to have eternal life, life eternal, then you must have Him who is eternal life incarnate, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven. No other name. Let that sink in. There is no other way than the name. The name of Jesus Christ. God incarnate by which you must be saved. You see, this message is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's folly. It's a scandal. We trip over it. Right? We're so sophisticated. Right? We, don't, we live in the 21st century. We've got the internet now. We've got airplanes. Right? We don't believe these fairy tales anymore. But this message to those who are being saved is the power of God and the salvation. You see, beloved, there's probably nothing more infuriating to the world than the Bible's insistence on the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He is the very self-revelation of God and the only way. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He and He alone has made Him known. You see, ironically, in the West today, we are tolerant of everything and anything with a capital E and a capital A. We're tolerant of everything and anything except Jesus Christ. We cannot have him. We will not have him to be our Lord. But if you think with me for a moment, you didn't think you were going to have to think today, right? It's Christmas. You're going to hear a nice little homily. It's not going to ruffle any feathers. I'm going to leave unscathed from the sermon. You are mistaken. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. As all reality, science, and rational thinking attest. If truth were all-inclusive, then nothing would be false. This cannot be. Now, in a day and age in which we live with muddled thinking, mud, jello for brains, we preach Christ. The way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. One commentator has the following paragraph. I want to read it to you. It's called The Stumbling Block of the Incarnation. I think it's so poignant that I wanted to read it in its entirety. He says, Many in our day are willing to believe in a Christ if he remains merely a spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing particular sins of our particular lives, then preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. This is the stumbling block of the Incarnation. 
When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man being God. When God becomes a man, all of us cease to be the measure of all things. And this man, and this man alone, Jesus Christ, becomes the measure, the measuring stick of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam in the garden. It's totalitarian. It's authoritarian. It's absolutism. Who does Jesus think he is? He's the Lord of glory. The lamb is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Don't stumble over his meekness, over his lowliness. May that draw you and woo you to this King of kings and Lord of lords. His power, his glory is made visible in that apparent weakness. Don't stumble over that. Beloved, as the church proclaims this gospel, Christ himself opens the gates of heaven. That's what the reformers taught. Not primarily through just reading the text. That's wonderful, and I exhort you, beginning the new year, man, set out to read the entirety of the word of God this year. That's a great thing to do. But the reformers understood that it is through the the preaching through a weak fool preaching a beautiful, glorious message of truth, through the folly of preaching, the kingdom of God advances as he slays the hearts of sinners, taking away the heart of stone and giving them the heart of flesh. That at one time was foolishness and folly and they stumbled over Now the sweetest, most beautiful, the most glorious message that they've ever heard. You see, when that message is preached with faithfulness and fidelity, the kingdom of God advances. I can't explain it. Sometimes it's so powerful that even as I'm preaching, I'm almost like I'm with you there, sitting there. In the third person, hearing myself preach about the cross and the blood, the sacrifice, the atonement, the resurrection. It's so glorious, so marvelous. It's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes, isn't it, church? You see, this is our message Christ is the only key that opens heaven's door, there's only one key. There's only one key on the key ring that can open the door of heaven. Right? You've seen my key. Some of you have seen my key chain. I didn't bring it this morning. I should have brought it for the kids to show them. I must have 20 keys on there. And they go, Pastor Boyd, what are you, our vice principal of a school? Uh, you know, remember that? When you're in 
elementary school or middle school or vice president. He just had this key ring, just so many keys. Beloved, there's only one key on my key ring that will open my house. Now, sometimes in the dark, I'm not exactly sure. I try to put the other ones in. It doesn't work. Because there's only one key that can open that door. And there's only one key that can open heaven's door to you this morning. And that key is Jesus Christ. Don't stumble over that. Don't leave here stumbling over that. Suppressing that truth and unrighteousness because it challenges your autonomy. Your autonomy is an idol. It needs to die and be crucified and enslaved by the power of the word of God. Lay it down. Lay it down. Kiss the Son, as the psalmist says. Come to Him. Kiss Him. Right? Pay Him homage. Bow before Him. This one in the feeding bowl there in Bethlehem with the farm animals and the smelly shepherds and all the things that come with human birth. Yeah, that's, that's right. A hymn that says, no crying he makes. No, that's heresy. That's heresy. He cried. He wept. He hungered. He thirsted. He was like you. And always that he might be your Savior. Qualified. As Pastor Sloan laid out so beautifully in his prayer. The last Adam. The better Adam. The one who did not come to the pristine garden but came to the desert, to the wilderness, the metaphor of our lives, the metaphor of this world, right? And overcame the dragon, crushing the dragon's head, but in so doing, bruises his own heel. And God was pleased on the third day to raise him from the dead. Don't stumble over that. Don't stumble. Come. Come to Jesus Christ. You see, this is our message. The only key is Jesus Christ. The only way for sinners to be reconciled and rescued from the wages of their sin. That leads to the last point. The purpose of the incarnation in verses 3 to 4. The Apostle John gives us two purposes to this proclamation, to this gospel that he's seen, he's touched, and he's heard. Notice the two purposes. Fellowship. Koinonia, partnership, spiritual partnership, and completion of joy. First, the fellowship. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. You see those two words, so that, right there in the text? That's a purpose clause in the original language. He gives us, so why, why am I telling you this? So that, here it is. So that you too are also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John preaches Christ so that believers may have fellowship with God. Let me just paraphrase for you what John is saying. We know that these incarnation desires have disrupted your lives there in Ephesus. Your lives as you walk with the Lord because of that, we know that our relationship with you has been strained. So I'm writing and reminding you of these things so that our fellowship 
will remain strong because our fellowship as apostles is with the Father and with the Son. And if you're going to stay with the Father and the Son, you must stay with us in our eyewitness testimony because we've seen it, we've heard it, we've touched Him. And to the degree you stay and remain faithful with the message that we preach, you stay and remain faithful to the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you depart and you follow these folks who've left the fellowship, these deniers, you have no fellowship with us. You have no fellowship with us and you have no fellowship, most importantly, with the living God. See how important the fidelity that we have to hold fast to the gospel, to contend earnestly for the gospel once delivered? Life is in the message. He is the message. We must stay fast, hold fast to that message, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of life incarnate. Now, this fellowship, again, is defined as a partnership grounded in a common experience of the person and work of Jesus Christ, as revealed by the apostles. You see, if you depart from the fellowship of the apostles, you depart from the fellowship of the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. John 17, 3, the Lord Jesus' high priestly prayer prays. This, the Lord Jesus does. This is eternal life. That you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If we desire biblical fellowship with the triune God and one another, we must strive for faithful proclamation to what the apostles bore witness to. The fruit of that faithful proclamation will be Christian fellowship And second purpose that John gives us here, fellowship and joy. That's the second person. Second purpose, rather. Notice what he says here. And we are writing these things, there's that word, those two words again, so that, a purpose clause, so that our joy may be complete. You see, the gospel is historical. The gospel has content, empirical content, regarding the purpose of, in person of Jesus Christ, and it has a a purpose, a fellowship, and a completion of joy. You see, these believers were in a fight for joy. The Apostle John knows that it's only in the fellowship of the living God that believers will experience true joy. You see, joy is a byproduct of fellowship in the gospel. It flows. It's a fruit that falls from that tree. Abide in me and I in you and you will bear what? You will bear much fruit. And what is the fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Right? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. And joy is one of those fruits. You see, if these dear believers fail to remain in the apostolic witness, there will be no joy. There will be no joy for you. If you begin to embrace a Christ other than the Christ of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will have no joy. You will not have the Christ who is. So John writes to call them to remain 
and what they have heard to keep themselves from idols. You see, John's fullness of joy is connected to his readers remaining in the gospel he witnessed to. 3 John 4 says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Right? We know this as parents, right? When our children are following hard and fast after Christ. There's no greater joy for a parent to hear that. You see what John is saying? Now he has joy. But he cannot have complete joy. Right? The fullness of joy if these dear believers there in Ephesus begin to depart. Right? His joy is found in Jesus Christ, but if his joy is going to be full as a pastor, he knows that the people he's responsible for must adhere to the gospel with great fidelity, to hold fast to it. How can he have joy if he knows that they're departing with these deniers? Oh, beloved, don't depart, he writes. And I say to you, don't depart on this Christmas day. From the gospel that you first heard, the the gospel that's historical, the gospel that's full of content. The apostles have seen it, they've heard it, they've touched it. Let us hold fast. Well, in conclusion, and you didn't think I would get there. Christianity... And listen, Christianity is not a philosophy. It's, it's not a bunch of rules and ethics. Now, it has implications for philosophy and has implications for ethics. But at its core, at its foundation, it's the revelation of the triune God of the second person of the Godhead made manifest in flesh. That's what it is. It's not about you. Isn't that real? Didn't you didn't that just exhale? <sighs> you mean it's, it's not about me? No, it's not. You can rest. Come unto me. You who are weary. Right? We're all weary. Right? It's 20... First century world, weary, weary, weary. You who are lowly in heart, come, find rest for your souls. Right? He picks up on it. It's no doubt Jesus has in his mind, Isaiah 55, right? Come without money, without cost. Buy and eat that your soul may live. This Christmas morning, rest in Jesus. Right? Take up the words of the hymn, Jesus, I am resting and resting in the joy of what thou art. Of what John said he saw, he heard, and he touched. Oh, beloved, may we hold fast. Will you hold fast so that my joy will be complete, that your joy will be complete, that our joy will be complete? Jesus Christ, wise men, women, boys, and girls, still seek him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you on this Christmas day that we know the reason for Christmas. Jesus Christ made manifest the second person of the Godhead, assuming our humanity to redeem us from ourselves, from our sin, from the guilt of sin, the power of sin, the God of this age, 
from this world to deliver us into the kingdom of your beloved, a kingdom of life and joy everlasting. Bless us this day, and Father, grant us faith to hold fast to this gospel, and may we be faithful to proclaim it with simplicity and clarity, and that none of us would stumble over it. We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen.